Hello and welcome, friends, family, and enemies alike, to episode 49 of Reading Cadence. I'm your host of the Displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Today, we continue through The Woman in White with a new perspective, Marion Halcombe's perspective. We get a deep dive into her diary, where we learn more about Laura's gamble that she makes to protect her love that she has, still for Walter Hartwright. Let us begin. The story continued by Marion Halcombe, in extracts from her diary. Limeridge House, November 8th. The passages omitted here and elsewhere in Miss Halcombe's diary are only those which bear no reference to Miss Fairley or to any of the persons with whom she is associated in these pages. This morning, Mr. Gilmore left us. His interview with Laura had evidently grieved and surprised him more than he'd like to confess. I felt afraid, from his look and manner when we parted, that she might have inadvertently betrayed to him the real secret of her depression and my anxiety. This doubt grew on me so, after he had gone, that I declined riding out with Sir Percival and went up to Laura's room instead. I have been sadly distrustful of myself in this difficult and lamentable matter ever since I found out my own ignorance of the strength of Laura's unhappy attachment. I ought to have known that the delicacy and forbearance and sense of honour which drew me to poor Hartwright and made me so sincerely admire and respect him were just the qualities to appeal most irresistibly to Laura's natural sensitiveness and natural generosity of nature. And yet, until she opened her heart to me of her own accord, I had no suspicion that this new feeling had taken root so deeply. I once thought time and care might remove it. I now fear that it will remain with her and alter her for life. The discovery that I have committed such an error in judgment as this makes me hesitate about everything else. I hesitate about Sir Percival in the face of the plainest proofs. I hesitate even in speaking to Laura. On this very morning, I doubted, with my hand on the door, whether I should ask her the questions I come to put or not. When I went into her room, I found her walking up and down in great impatience. She looked flushed and excited, and she came forward at once, and she spoke to me before I could open my lips. I wanted you, she said. Come and sit down on the sofa with me, Marion. I can bear this no longer. I must and will end it. There was too much color in her cheeks, too much energy in her manner, too much firmness in her voice. The little book of Hartwright's drawings, the fatal book that she will dream over whenever she is alone, was in one of her hands. I began by gently and firmly taking it from her and putting it out of sight on a side table. Tell me quietly, my darling, what you wish to do, I said. Has Mr. Gilmore been advising you? She shook her head. No, not in what I'm thinking of now. He was very kind and good to me, Marion, and I am ashamed to say I distressed him by crying. 
I am miserably helpless. I can't control myself. For my own sake, and for all our sakes, I must have courage enough to end it. Do you mean courage enough to claim your release? I asked. No, she said simply. Courage, dear, to tell the truth. She put her arms round my neck and rested her head quietly on my bosom. On the opposite wall hung the miniature portrait of her father. I bent over her and saw that she was looking at it while her head lay on my breast. I can never claim my release from my engagement, she went on. Whatever way it ends, it must end wretchedly for me. All I can do, Marion, is not to add the remembrance that I've broken my promise and forgotten my father's dying words, to make that wretchedness worse. What is it you propose, then? I asked. To tell Sir Percival Glyde the truth with my own lips, she answered, and to let him release me, if he will, not because I ask him, but because he knows all. What do you mean, Laura, by all? Sir Percival will know enough, he has told me so himself, if he knows that the engagement is opposed to your own wishes. Can I tell him that? when the engagement was made for me by my father with my own consent? I should have kept my promise, not happily, I'm afraid, but still contentedly. She stopped, turned her face to me, and laid her cheek close against mine. I should have kept my engagement, Marian, if another love had not grown up in my heart, which was not there when I had first promised to be Sir Percival's wife. Laura, you will never lower yourself by making confession to him. I shall lower myself, indeed, if I gain my release by hiding from him what he has a right to know. He is not a shadow of a right to know it. Wrong, Marion, wrong. I ought to deceive no one, least of all the man to whom my father gave me and to whom I gave myself. She put her lips to mine and kissed me. My own love, she said softly, you are so much too fond of me and so much too proud of me that you forget in my case what you would remember in your own. Better that Sir Percival should doubt my motives and misjudge my conduct if he will than that I should be first false to him in thought and then mean enough to serve my own interests by hiding the falsehood. I held her away from me in astonishment. For the first time in our lives, we had changed places. The resolution was all on her side, the hesitation all on mine. I looked into the pale, quiet, resigned young face. I saw the pure, innocent heart in the loving eyes that looked back at me and the poor worldly cautions and objections that rose to my lips dwindled and died away in their own emptiness. I hung my head in silence. In her place, the despicably small pride which makes so many women deceitful would have been my pride and would have made me deceitful too. Don't be angry with me, Marion. 
she said, mistaking my silence. I only answered by drawing her close to me again. I was afraid of crying if I spoke. My tears do not flow so easily as they ought. They come almost like men's tears, with sobs that seem to tear me in pieces and that frighten everyone about me. I have thought of this love for many days, she went on, twining and twisting my hair with that childish restlessness in her fingers, which poor Mrs. Vesey still tries so patiently and so vainly to cure her of. I have thought of it very seriously, and I can be sure of my courage when my own conscience tells me I am right. Let me speak to him tomorrow, in your presence, Marion. I will say nothing that is wrong, nothing that you or I need to be ashamed of. But, oh, it will ease my heart so to end this miserable concealment. Only let me know and feel that I have no deception to answer for on my side. And then when he has heard what I have to say, let him act towards me as he will. She sighed and put her head back in its old position on my bosom. Sad misgivings about what the end would be weighed upon my mind, but still distrusting myself, I told her that I would do as she wished. She thanked me, and we passed gradually into talking of other things. At dinner, she joined us again and was more easy and more herself with Sir Percival than I've seen her yet. In the evening, she went to the piano choosing new music of the dexterous, tuneless, florid kind. The lovely old melodies of Mozart, which poor Hartwright was so fond of. She has never played since he left. The book is no longer in the music stand. She took the volume away herself, so that nobody might find it out and ask her to play from it. I had no opportunity of discovering whether her purpose of the morning had changed or not. Until she wished... Sir Percival, good night. And then her own words informed me that it was unaltered. She said, very quietly, that she wished to speak to him after breakfast, and that he would find her in her sitting room with me. He changed colour at those words, and I felt his hand trembling a little when it came to my turn to take it. The event of the next morning would decide his future life and he evidently knew it. I went in, as usual, through the door between our two bedrooms to bid Laura good night before she went to sleep. In stooping over to kiss her, I saw the little book of Hartwright's drawings, half hidden under her pillow, just in the place where she used to hide her favorite toys when she was a child. I could not find it in my heart to say anything, but I pointed to the book and shook my head. She reached both hands up to my cheeks and drew my face down to hers till our lips met. Leave it there tonight, she whispered. Tomorrow may be cruel and may make me say goodbye to it forever. November 9th. The first event of the morning was not of a kind to raise my spirits. A letter arrived for me from poor Walter Hartwright. It is the answer to mine describing the manner in which Sir Percival cleared himself of the suspicion raised by Anne Catherick's letter. He writes shortly and bitterly about Sir Percival's explanations, only saying that 
he has no right to offer an opinion on the conduct of those who are above him. This is sad, but his occasional references to himself grieve me still more. He says that the effort to return to his old habits and pursuits grows harder instead of easier to him every day, and he implores me, if I have any interest, to exert it to get him employment that will necessitate his absence from England and take him among new scenes and new people. I have been made all the readier to comply with this request by a passage at the end of his letter, which has almost alarmed me. After mentioning that he has neither seen nor heard anything of Anne Catherick, he suddenly breaks off and hints in the most abrupt, mysterious manner that he has been perpetually watched and followed by strange men ever since he returned to London. He acknowledges that he cannot prove this extraordinary suspicion by fixing on any particular persons, but he declares that the suspicion itself is present to him night and day. This has frightened me, because it looks as if his one fixed idea about Laura was becoming too much for his mind. I will write immediately to some of my mother's influential old friends in London and press his claims on their notice. Change of scene and change of occupation may really be the salvation of him at this crisis in his life. Greatly to my relief, Sir Percival sent an apology for not joining us at breakfast. He had taken an early cup of coffee in his own room, and he was still engaged there in writing letters. At eleven o'clock, if that hour was convenient, he would do himself the honour of waiting on Miss Fairley and Miss Halcombe. My eyes were on Laura's face while the message was being delivered. I'd found her unaccountably quiet and composed on going into a room in the morning, and so she remained all through breakfast. Even when we were sitting together on the sofa in her room, waiting for Sir Percival, she still preserved her self-control. Don't be afraid of me, Marion, was all she said. I may forget myself with an old friend like Mr. Gilmore, or with a dear sister like you, but I will not forget myself with Sir Percival Glyde. I looked at her and listened to her in silent surprise. Through all the years of our close intimacy, this passive force in her character had been hidden from me. Hidden even from herself, till love found it, and suffering called it forth. As the clock on the mantelpiece struck eleven, Sir Percival knocked at the door and came in. There was suppressed anxiety and agitation in every line of his face. The dry, sharp cough, which teases him at most times, seemed to be troubling him more incessantly than ever. He sat down opposite to us at the table, and Laura remained by me. I looked attentively at them both, and he was the palest of the two. He said a few unimportant words, with a visible effort to preserve his customary ease of manner, but his voice was not to be studied, and the restless uneasiness in his eyes was not to be concealed. He must have felt this himself, for he stopped in the middle of a sentence and gave up even the attempt to hide his embarrassment any longer. 
There was just one moment of dead silence before Laura addressed him. I wish to speak to you, Sir Percival, she said, on a subject that is very important to us both. My sister is here because her presence helps me and gives me confidence. She has not suggested one word of what I am going to say. I speak from my own thoughts, not from hers. I'm sure you will be kind enough to understand that before I go any farther. Sir Percival bowed. She had proceeded thus far with perfect outward tranquility and perfect propriety of manner. She looked at him, and he looked at her. They seemed, at the outset at least, resolved to understand one another plainly. I've heard from Marion, she went on, that I have only to claim my release from our engagement to obtain that release from you. It was forbearing and generous on your part, Sir Percival, to send me such a message. It is only doing you justice to say that I am grateful for the offer, and I hope and believe that it is only doing myself justice to tell you that I decline to accept it. His attentive face relaxed a little, but I saw one of his feet softly, quietly, incessantly beating on the carpet under the table, and I felt that he was secretly as anxious as ever. I've not forgotten, she said, that you asked my father's permission before you honoured me with a proposal of marriage. Perhaps you have not forgotten either what I said when I consented to our engagement. I ventured to tell you that my father's influence and advice had mainly decided me to give you my promise. I was guided by my father because I always found him the truest of all advisers, the best and fondest of all protectors and friends. I've lost him now. I've only his memory to love. But my faith in that dear dead friend has never been shaken. I believe at this moment as truly as I ever believed, that he knew what was best, and that his hopes and wishes ought to be my hopes and wishes too. Her voice trembled for the first time. Her restless fingers stole their way into my lap and held fast by one of my hands. There was another moment of silence, and then Sir Percival spoke. "'May I ask?' he said. If I ever proved myself unworthy of the trust which it has been hitherto my greatest honour and greatest happiness to possess, I have found nothing in your conduct to blame, she answered. You have always treated me with the same delicacy and the same forbearance. You have deserved my trust, and what is of far more importance in my estimation, you have deserved my father's trust out of which mine grew. You have given me no excuse, even if I wanted to find one, for asking to be released from my pledge. What I have said so far has been spoken with the wish to acknowledge my whole obligation to you, my regard for that obligation, my regard for my father's memory, and my regard for my own promise, all forbid me to set the example on my side of withdrawing from our present position. The breaking of our engagement must be entirely your wish and act, Sir Percival, not mine. The uneasy beating of his foot 
suddenly stopped, and he leaned forward eagerly across the table. My act? he said. What reason can there be on my side for withdrawing? I heard her breath quickening. I felt her hand growing cold, in spite of what she had said to me when we were alone. I began to be afraid of her. I was wrong. A reason that is very hard to tell you, she answered. There is change in me, Sir Percival. A change which is serious enough to justify you, to yourself and to me, in breaking off our engagement. His face turned so pale again that even his lips lost their colour. He raised the arm which lay on the table, turned a little way in his chair, and supported his head on his hand so that his profile only was presented to us. What change? he asked. The tone in which he put the question jarred on me. There was something painfully suppressed in it. She sighed heavily and leaned towards me a little, so as to rest her shoulder against mine. I felt her trembling and tried to spare her by speaking myself. She stopped me by a warning pressure of her hand and then addressed Sir Percival once more, but this time without looking at him. I've heard, she said, and I believe it, that the fondest and truest of all affections is the affection which a woman ought to bear to her husband. When our engagement began, that affection was mine to give, if I could, and yours to win, if you could. Will you pardon me and spare me, Sir Percival, if I acknowledge that it is not so any longer? A few tears gathered in her eyes and dropped over her cheeks slowly as she paused and waited for his answer. He did not utter a word. At the beginning of her reply, he had moved the hand on which his head rested so that it hid his face. I saw nothing but the upper part of his figure at the table. Not a muscle of him moved. The fingers of the hand which supported his head were dented deep in his hair. They might have expressed hidden anger or hidden grief. It was hard to say which. There was no significant trembling in them. There was nothing, absolutely nothing, to tell the secret of his thoughts at that moment. The moment which was the crisis of his life and the crisis of hers. I was determined to make him declare himself for Laura's sake. Sir Percival, I interposed sharply. Have you nothing to say when my sister has said so much? More, in my opinion, I added, my unlucky temper getting the better of me, than any man alive in your position has a right to hear from her. That last rash sentence opened a way for him by which to escape me if he chose, and he instantly took advantage of it. Pardon me, Miss Halcombe, he said, still keeping his hand over his face. Pardon me if I remind you that I have claimed no such right. The few plain words which would have brought him back to the point from which he had wandered were just on my lips when Laura checked me by speaking again. 
I hope I have not made my painful acknowledgement in vain, she continued. I hope it has secured me your entire confidence in what I have still to say. Pray, be assured of it. He made that brief reply warmly, dropping his hand on the table while he spoke, and turning towards us again. Whatever outward change had passed over him was gone now. His face was eager and expectant. It expressed nothing but the most intense anxiety to hear her next words. I wish you to understand that I have not spoken from any selfish motive, she said. If you leave me, Sir Percival, after what you have just heard, you do not leave me to marry another man. You only allow me to remain a single woman for the rest of my life. My fault towards you has begun and ended in my own thoughts. It can never go any farther. No word has passed. She hesitated, in doubt about the expression she should use next, hesitated in a momentary confusion, which was very sad and very painful to see. No word has passed, she patiently and resolutely resumed, between myself and the person to whom I am now referring, for the first and last time in your presence, of my feelings towards him, or of his feelings towards me. No word can ever pass. Neither he nor I are likely in this world to meet again. I earnestly beg you to spare me from saying any more, and to believe me on my word in what I have just told you. It is the truth, Sir Percival, the truth which I think my promised husband has a claim to hear at any sacrifice of my own feelings. I trust to his generosity to pardon me, and to his honour to keep my secret. Both these trusts are sacred to me, he said, and both shall be sacredly kept. After answering in those terms, he paused and looked at her as if he was waiting to hear more. I've said all I wish to say, she added quietly. I've said more than enough to justify you in withdrawing from your engagement. You have said more than enough, he answered, to make it the dearest object of my life to keep the engagement. With those words, he rose from his chair and advanced a few steps towards the place where she was sitting. She started violently, and a faint cry of surprise escaped her. Every word she had spoken had innocently portrayed her purity and truth to a man who thoroughly understood the priceless value of a pure and true woman. Her own noble conduct had been the hidden enemy throughout of all the hopes she had trusted to it. I dreaded this from the first. I would have prevented it if she had allowed me the smallest chance of doing so. I even waited and watched her now when the harm was done for a word from Sir Percival that would give me the opportunity of putting him in the wrong. You have left it to me, Miss Fairley, to resign you, he continued. I'm not heartless enough to resign a woman who has just shown herself to be the noblest of her sex. He spoke with such warmth and feeling, with such passionate enthusiasm, 
and yet with such perfect delicacy that she raised her head, flushed up a little, and looked at him with sudden animation and spirit. No, she said firmly, the most wretched of her sex, if she must give herself in marriage when she cannot give her love. May she not give it in the future? he asked. If the one object of her husband's life is to deserve it? Never, she answered. If you still persist in maintaining our engagement, I may be your true and faithful wife, Sir Percival. Your loving wife, if I know my own heart. Never. She looked so irresistibly beautiful as she said those brave words that no man alive could have steeled his heart against her. I tried hard to feel that Sir Percival was to blame and to say so, but my womanhood would pity him in spite of myself. I gratefully accept your faith and truth, he said. The least that you can offer is more to me than the utmost that I could hope for from any other woman in the world. Her left hand still held mine, but her right hand hung listlessly at her side. He raised it gently to his lips, touched it with them rather than kissed it, bowed to me, and then, with perfect delicacy and discretion, silently quitted the room. She neither moved nor said a word when he was gone. She sat by me, cold and still, with her eyes fixed on the ground. I saw it was hopeless and useless to speak, and I only put my arm round her and held her to me in silence. We remained together, so for what seemed a long and weary time. So long and so weary that I grew uneasy and spoke to her softly in the hope of producing a change. The sound of my voice seemed to startle her into consciousness. She suddenly drew herself away from me and rose to her feet. I must submit, Marian, as well as I can, she said. My new life has its hard duties, and one of them begins today. As she spoke, she went to a side table near the window, on which her sketching materials were placed, gathered them together carefully, and put them in a drawer of her cabinet. She locked the drawer and brought the key to me. I must part from everything that reminds me of him, she said. Keep the key wherever you please. I shall never want it again. Before I could say a word, she had turned away to her bookcase and had taken from it the album that contained Walter Hartwright's drawings. She hesitated for a moment, holding the little volume fondly in her hands, then lifted it to her lips and kissed it. Oh, Laura, Laura, I said, not angrily, not reprovingly, with nothing but sorrow in my voice and nothing but sorrow in my heart. It's the last time, Marion, she pleaded. I'm bidding it goodbye forever. 
she laid the book on the table and drew out the comb that fastened her hair. It fell in its matchless beauty over her back and shoulders and dropped round her far below her waist. She separated one long, thin lock from the rest, cut it off, and pinned it carefully in the form of a circle on the first blank page of the album. The moment it was fastened, she closed the volume hurriedly and placed it in my hands. You write to him, and he writes to you, she said. While I am alive, if he asks after me, always tell him I am well, and never say I am unhappy. Don't distress him, Marion, for my sake. Don't distress him. If I die first, promise you will give him this little book of his drawings with my hair in it. There can be no harm when I am gone in telling him that I put it there with my own hands. And say, O oh Marion, say for me then what I can never say for myself. Say I loved him. She flung her arms round my neck and whispered the last words in my ear with a passionate delight in uttering them, which it almost broke my heart to hear. All the long restraint she had imposed on herself gave way in that first last outburst of tenderness. She broke from me with hysterical vehemence and threw herself on the sofa in a paroxysm of sobs and tears that shook her from head to foot. I tried vainly to soothe her and reason with her. She was past being soothed and past being reasoned with. It was the sad, sudden end for us, too, of this memorable day. When the fit had worn itself out, she was too exhausted to speak. She slumbered towards the afternoon, and I put away the book of drawings so that she might not see it when she woke. My face was calm, whatever my heart might be, when she opened her eyes again and looked at me. We said no more to each other about the distressing interview of the morning. Sir Percival's name was not mentioned. Walter Hartwright was not alluded to again by either of us for the remainder of the day. Thus concludes these two sections of Marion Halcombe's diary, because, let me tell you folks, we got through two days of her writing in all of that reading. There's quite a few more days left with her in her diary. Like I said, it's a forest. And I don't mean just because it's a lot of pages of paper. And so, let us talk about this book, this diary, you know? We've, we've gotten a new perspective. This is probably the boldest we've ever seen Laura talking in any sh way, shape, or form. She's always been this quiet, re reclusive character. And here, we finally get to see her, her personality come out a little bit more. And we get to see how deep her relationship with Marion Halcombe truly is. Like, Marion is her confidant. And they have walked through a lot of things together in life. And so Laura trusts Marion tremendously. But we find ourselves in a very awkward predicament, don't we? Because 
Laura is convinced that as soon as she comes clean to Sir Percival, that she doesn't really love him any longer and that she has another love in her life that she's not going to go off and pursue, but is somebody that will inhibit her from truly enjoying the marriage relationship set up by her late father. She is depending upon Sir Percival to be like, yeah, you're right. I respect your wishes. You're a kind and noble person. I'm a kind and noble person too. I want to have a woman, a, a wife who will love me back. And so you're right. I don't think this marriage is a good fit for us. But no. Instead, Sir Percival does something very intriguing to me because I'm still coming at it from a cynical angle. Might I say in Marion Halcombe's diary, she gives him very generous justifications for why he said certain things. <laughs> he thoroughly understood the priceless value of a pure and true woman. Yeah, that was why he chose to continue to still go on with the engagement. Sure. I got one word that's hyphenated for all of this. Cha-ching. That is why Sir Percival is staying with Laura. He doesn't even love her himself. But he has this very fake winning attitude. And I'm going to feel really rotten if this truly is a one-dimensional character and he's truly like the nicest, most noble person ever. Don't ask me also why I'm siding with a crazy person in Anne Catherick in that now I'm trusting her over him, over her suspicions about him. I don't know, maybe it's just because this is all such a sad state of affairs, especially at the end of this reading when she decided she was going to lock away all of Walter Hartwright's drawings that he had drawn for her and that reminded her of him. And so, oh my gosh, like, this can't be it, okay? I've read better storyline. Princess Bride has a better storyline than what we're currently seeing right now. And that's saying something. So this is like, I, this is like Laura's going off with Humperdinck and we're all okay with it. Like that's, that's the way I'm viewing this situation. So um, take it or leave it guys and ladies. It's like, this not, it's not okay. But regardless of all this, what we've come to the conclusion is Laura's plan backfires on her. Sir Percival Glyde, a quote-unquote noble character, will continue on with her for the sake of earning her love later on. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. We're going to see how that plays out next week. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Gators. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite Phil Olson. And as they say in show business, that's all she wrote for now. <laughs>